Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. One of the reasons I like that salawat is because of what it starts with. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad and Fatih lima ulik. Means the opener for that which is closed. And to me it's very meaningful because definitely in the beginning of knowing who the Prophet was, is, then my heart was closed. And it's through the Prophet that it was able to be opened at all. And then every day it continues, inshallah. Our hearts get more and more open. And that's all from the blessing of knowing the Prophet. May we know him as he is, not was. Is Sometimes you'll hear this in the community People make this translation It's a very bad translation When they say the shahada So the shahada is La ilaha illallah Muhammadun Rasulullah It's la ilaha illallah There's no God but Allah Muhammad is the messenger of Allah Not Muhammad was the messenger of Allah He is the messenger of Allah Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam the prophets are alive in their graves. This is a general position of Ahl Sunnah. So he is the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. In the very strong narrations, he returns the salam of anyone who says salam to him Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And the less strong but generally liked narrations. Not only is the salam um, presented to him, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, but the name of the person is also presented to him. The Ya Rasulullah, so and so, the son of so and so, gives salam to you. And the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam responds to it. So Allahumma salli wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad. In other narrations, again, they're not technically as strong, but the the ulama generally like them. Narrations about how the Prophet has shown the deeds of his ummah and those that he's happy with, he praises Allah for that, and those that he's are maybe not the best of deeds, and he seeks forgiveness for the for the ummah uh, for their shortcomings. So the Prophet is still a part of the life of the believer. It's the, the important takeaway, and the Muslims uh, I think understood this generation upon generation that there's kind of like an Active, real relationship with the Prophet Okay, so we left off on point number 18 uh, Point number 18 
The author says the following, visit your relatives without being invited and avoid taklif and takalluf. Avoid taklif and takalluf, which we will uh, define if he doesn't in the description. It is narrated that a group of people visited a man from the first generations of Muslims, tabi'un, and the latter could not find anything in his house to offer his guests. He went to his friend's house and found a cooked meal and some bread there. He took all the food and offered it to his guests. When his friend came back home, he did not find anything from the food and bread in his house. When some passerby told him that it was his friend who came and took them to serve his guest, he became extremely happy and told his friend, please do feel free to do it again and again whenever you need. Okay, so scenario, uh, person A has guests come over, he doesn't find anything in his house. So he's like, what should I do? I'm very close with person B. So he goes to person B's house, he goes to person B's house, he finds prepared food, mashallah, food, bread, everything is there. So he takes all of it <laughs> back to his house to feed his guests. So person B comes, or person, who is it now, A, comes home and doesn't find anything. And someone tells him, oh yeah, you know, so-and-so came and took, your, took the food because he had a guest. And he says, oh, you know, alhamdulillah, that's great. If that happens, do it again. If that happens, do it again. So this is... This is the true meaning of like Mikasa Sukasa, you know, California classic. Mikasa Sukasa. My house is your house, right? My house, their their house was literally the other person's house. You know, you, someone came to your home, you didn't find anything. You come to your other home, find something, take it. You know, so this is a very beautiful thing, mashallah. People of Fatuwa visit each other in their homes. Mm. As a matter of fact, the Prophet ﷺ used to visit his companions at their homes, eat and even sleep there when necessary. Likewise, he would invite them to his home. The Prophet ﷺ also used to visit the companions he felt close to without being invited. In fact, this behavior of visiting someone without waiting for an official invitation is seen as a sign of closeness and sincerity. I'm going to come back to some of these points. However, hospitality and mutual visits also have a set of adab that both the visitor and the host should observe. One of the most important of these is staying away from taklif and tikalluf. Taklif happens when the guest expects too much from the host and does not appreciate what is being offered to them. Tikalluf happens when the host lay themselves out too much and do more than what is needed to welcome the guest. Hospitality etiquette under futuwa requires no taklif or tikalluf between the visitor and the host. Thus, neither side gets into any kind of physical or material trouble. A comfortable visit is realized and the actions of visiting and being visited become more sustainable. This is extremely, extremely important. Okay? MashaAllah, our cultures generally are very hospitable. The problem, if I'm allowed to say that, is that oftentimes our cultures are so hospitable that they're not hospitable. Do you understand what I'm saying? So the dictates of being hospitable become so high and so difficult that people don't want to host anymore. Because it's like, if I'm going to host, I have to have this, the pre-event, I have to have the appetizer, I have to have part one, part two, part three. There have to be five different dishes. One dish is not sufficient. There have to be at least five different options. And then there's the first dessert, and then there's the second dessert, and then there's tea, and like this is really the whole thing, right? 
And maybe there's a time and place where that made sense. I don't know. I don't think that was, doesn't seem to be what the uh, early Muslims were doing usually. But maybe there was a time and place where that made sense. And, and alhamdulillah, if a person is able to do that, then alhamdulillah, those are not bad things, obviously. But what is the actual goal? Right? We have to think, what is the actual goal? The actual goal is that visit, people visit each other. The actual goal is that people visit each other. So if that becomes, if the demands of that from the guest and from the host become so difficult, because sometimes the host gets over it. Maybe the host is like, you know what, it's okay. I'm just going to do something simple. I'm all right. And then, but they're like, but this guest, they come from such and such culture. If I don't do this thing, then I'm going to be, you know, it becomes a mess from both sides. At some point, you just have to do what's right. I'll make this as a general point. Like at some point, you just have to do what's right. And if other people have an issue with it, like we said before, they can handle their own issues. That's for them to figure out for themselves. But we do what's right. Um, so this becomes an issue. But if it's very simple, you know, some people, they don't make a big deal out of it. If they have time to prepare, they'll prepare. If they don't have time to prepare, it doesn't stop them from, invite, from you coming over. And they'll just put out whatever they have. So, yeah. And by the way, we should be simple people. Like, we should actually be simple people. But like uh, the Prophet ﷺ, despite his generosity and everything else in some narrations, he would keep kutu amihi in his house. He would keep enough food for the year in his house. Question is, what is enough food for the year? <laughs> right? Like in, in, in our context, maybe that's something insane. Like we have 500 chickens in the backyard and like 12 cows, you know, <laughs> like we're good for the year. But the Prophet is good for the year was probably like a couple bags of barley. You know, we're good for the year now. We can make some bread, have a little bit of bread every day, and we're good. We've got the goat, the goat will give us some cheese, some milk. If we need some cheese, we can get some cheese from that too. Maybe we got a chicken or two, they give us some eggs. And we've got the barley, a couple bags, that lasts us for the year. A couple bags of rice, actually it could probably last you for a long time, right? Like how often do, I don't know, some families obviously are bigger than others, but, and some people eat rice more often than others, but generally like a, that 10 pound bag of rice lasts a good amount of time, right? It's not too hard to actually keep a year's worth of those in your house. And anytime someone comes, you just pop the rice on, okay, we got rice. Whatever vegetables are there, you can throw them on. If there's some meat, there's some meat. If there's something in the freezer, something in the freezer, you just put it together and make it happen. Alhamdulillah, everyone eats. Everyone's happy. We're not going to each other's house to have gourmet meals, although it's very nice, mashallah. But we're going to each other's house to spend time with each other. Right? Another point on this is that uh, visiting people uninvited used to be a really big thing, even up to like 50 years ago. You know? Visiting uninvited was a big thing. Because why? Because everyone lived in the same neighborhood. And while you're out, you just stop by, knock on the door, see if they're available, if they're not. And everyone knows the etiquette. If you knock, no one answers. You knock, no one answers. You knock, no one answers. You leave. Right? You leave. If you knock and they say, actually, we're kind of busy. We can't host you right now. No one is hurt. Our feelings are not hurt. They say, okay, we'll come back tomorrow. You know, when I'm out next time, I'll try to come by. It's no big deal. It's very fluid in that way. Right? Um, I think one of the things we can take from this is that it's good to initiate interaction. 
right? So what, what is the idea here is that I don't, I'm not waiting to be invited, but I'll initiate it. Either I'll try to visit them or I'll invite them over, but we want to keep the ties going. Uh, one of our teachers said that in Ottoman civilization, they had things, I don't know how other civilizations probably had stuff too, where like if someone was home and they were ready to have a guest, they put like a flower pot in the windowsill or something like that, right? And if they're not ready to have a guest, there's no flower pot in the windowsill. So anyone who's walking by, if they have some extra time they want to visit, they can look and they know, okay, it's an okay time to come. It's not an okay time to come. So they had things like this, subhanAllah. Sometimes we look at things in the past and we're like, we think they had nothing. Now people, have, people, human beings, mashallah, are very beautiful. Human beings will always be focused on things. They'll always come up with something. You know, they're not busy with social media. They're going to busy themselves with something else. They're going to visit people. They're going to figure out how, okay, we have people that come. How can we make it clear that when they should come, when they should not come? They're going to, you know, people will figure these things out, subhanAllah. Another thing related to this, which again is kind of uh, not always easy in our context, but at least something that we can think about, is architecture... And I've probably said this before, so I probably, maybe I won't belabor it too much, but architecture is a manifestation of a civilization's values. Okay? So ideally, a, a, actually even not ideally, even if it's unintentional, the architecture will reflect people's values. So as we said, I think last time, that in many traditional Muslim places, homes were designed the same from the outside. From the outside, you can't really tell that much difference. It's the inside that you can see the difference, right? Um, you might have also, like, spaces are built differently, right? So think about how, let's take like a property in America, right? The whole property. You have the lot, and the house is in the middle of the lot, right? And what goes around the house is all yard. And... You know, alhamdulillah, that's, that is what it is Because this is my family, it's my house, this is my space, this is how it is, right? Muslim properties are usually different In the sense that, like you have the, the, you have the lot The home might be on like the edges of the lot And the yard might be in the inside Why? So that anyone who's in your home can use the yard Without being exposed to anything Their, sh their yard is private too And on top of that, you can make rooms that have entrances and exits that are independent from the main entrance and exit. So if someone's spending the night, if you have guests, if any number of reasons, you can isolate things much more easily. If you want to adopt a child, you don't have to worry about as strictly like the child is not going to be mahram or not. Why? Because they have their own room, they can enter and exit. It's like, and there's a shared space. Maybe multiple families live in the same space anyways, right? So it, it facilitates a whole lot of different things. Um, many of the shiuch that we would I think in like the Muslim lands it's still the case that many of the shiuch function more out of their homes than out of public spaces uh, public space would be like somewhere you go and you teach but if you want to see the sheikh you go to their house and unless the sheikh is like really poor obviously they don't have the same options but if, if, they, have, if they have some level of stability then it usually would be the case that like there's a space that's specifically for the guest and this is no, no this, is where, this is where you go and you sit and So uh, As we've said before Part of the idea of the majlis was to try to make it Like a public living room 
ever since we left our space in COVID, it hasn't been that way. But the initial space was like that. The initial space was like a public living room. There was the reception, you had food and stuff. There was a kitchen area. There was a sitting area. There was a kid's room. There was a baby room. There was a library. There was an office. And there was a main hall. It wasn't a huge space, but it had all of those things. So like you could come and kids, people, there was one sister came one time. And she came and she changed her diaper on the, we had a changing table with diapers and everything. And she was, uh, she was like, you know, she, I'll tell you something. I said, what? She said, I didn't even, the baby didn't even need a diaper change. <laughs> she was like, I was just so surprised that I came into a Muslim space and there was a place designated for me to change the diaper that I had to change the diaper. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's like a bouncer, there's all kinds of stuff. Small space, but alhamdulillah. Inshallah, one day we'll have space again. Uh, so all of these are points. If you have a space in the house that's easy to host in, then it makes it easier to host, right? Like I know this room, so this area of the house is more cut off from the rest of it or whatever else. It doesn't really interrupt what happens with other people, you know, and they can just come here. <coughs> Obviously, we have limited control over that now, but just something to keep in mind. The dream for me was like, we went to one Shaykh, Shaykh Fathi Hijazi, Hafidhullah. We went to his, uh, his home, and there were some cool things that happened on that trip. He was like an older Shaykh, and uh, two or three of his sons, they also got their PhDs from Al-Azhar. So he's like an older Shaykh, of course he has his PhD. His sons also had their PhDs from Azhar in Islamic studies and stuff. And when we left, this one of the sons drove us back to Cairo. It was like on the outskirts. I don't even know where it was, to be honest. But uh, drove us back. And when we get in the car, the tape that's playing is a tape of his father's lecture. He's like, Sharita Basman, Walid. Like, just listening to this lecture from my father. Like, they listened to their own father's lectures. It was so amazing, subhanAllah. And uh, so we, we get to the where he lives. And they have the building. Probably many people in Eastern lands know this uh, idea. The family owns the apartment building. So the apartment building was like, I think four or five floors, you know? And the bottom floor is the maktaba. Bottom floor is like the diwan or the majlis. That's where his books are. It's all open space. Anyone comes there anytime, sit with the sheikhs. That's where all the guests come, right? It's the first floor. Second floor was like one of the sons and his family. Third floor, it's all of them, of course, it's an apartment building, so each, they're all separate, right? So the second floor is a one son and his family, the third floor was the next son and his family, fourth floor, and then the top floor was the sheikh's floor, you know? So, like, mashallah, nice way to live. Number 19, glorify the bounties of Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala. Futuwa entails observing a set of adab towards Allah and his servants. One of the most important of these adab is glorifying the bounties of Allah and not belittling even the smallest of them. Fatua entails observing a set of adab towards Allah and His servants. One of the most important of these adab is glorifying the bounties of Allah and not belittling even the smallest of them. SubhanAllah. This is, a, this is something we have to teach ourselves. Something we have to teach ourselves. Allah forgive us. I've been 
it so happens that I was thinking about this one earlier this week and like how many mistakes I regularly make in this issue, so it's a little bit uh, close to home. But, uh, you know, everything is a blessing in the end, alhamdulillah. Like if we, if we have shelter, if we have a home, if we have food, if we have good company, if we have safety, these are huge blessings, right? huge blessings. And uh, not only, like one thing is we want to be grateful for these things. But another thing is that sometimes talking in certain ways may not be technically complaining about the thing, but really actually it's a complaint. Like, shakwa uh, dimnan. It's like there, there's a complaint underneath it. You didn't say it, but it's a complaint, right? And sometimes a complaint can be a, um, a type of lack of gratitude, you know? The line is very thin. The line between, like, I'm complaining about this thing because I want it to be better, and I'm complaining about this thing because my gratitude is insufficient. The line is very, it's a very thin line. And uh, it's very easy to um, Yeah, subhanAllah Teaching is hard, you know <laughs> This point just makes me like Kind of want to pack up and go home Stop talking I think one of the things that's useful in this regard is to consider that action is actions speak louder than words, right? So even if I have a thing that I'm complaining about, theoretically, because I want it to improve, if I can like make sure first that I'm doing something about that, right? So I have I don't know I don't want to think of hypotheticals, but just think of something that might be. Uh, and then sometimes you just take action accordingly, we don't have to talk about it. And maybe, you know, there's a different way to do it if... Uh, this reminds me of a story of Imam Ahmed. You know, there's a doctor who was treating Imam Ahmed at the end of his life when he was ill. And there was another big sheikh that he was also treating. So the doctor came to Imam Ahmed, he asked him how he's doing and stuff, he really wouldn't, he won't like say anything, you know? Because <laughs> he feels like if he's responding, then he's complaining. So then he goes to the other sheikh, and the sheikh says, Alhamdulillah, such and such and such and such is what's wrong, you know? And the doctor comes back to Imam Ahmed, he has the same situation, he tells him, he says, Ahmed, you know, Abu Abdullah, when I went to so-and-so, he, he said, Alhamdulillah, then he told me what his issue is. And you don't say anything. So Imam Ahmed told him, go to him, ask him what his evidence is. <laughs> so the doctor goes to the other person. He tells him, what the Imam Ahmed is asking, what your evidence is. And he started laughing. He said, Abu Abdullah, he always wants the hadith. You know, like what's, <laughs> I don't remember the narration, but he told him some narration. And then he went back to Imam Ahmed, he told him. And then Imam Ahmed said, Alhamdulillah, such and such and such. So like before, what, what was the adab of it was like, we start by expressing gratitude, and okay, here's the issue. And then, but again, like, if that's really sincere, then there's going to be the way that I talk about the issue is probably going to be different. So I have to really, like, when I say Alhamdulillah, really feel Alhamdulillah. And then, okay, such and such and such and such. Allah forgive us. Astaghfirullah.
When the Prophet ﷺ was offered a meal, he would eat it if he liked it. If he did not like it, he would remain silent because condemning the offering is a fault against both Allah and the servant. There's like this uh, deep sensitivity sometimes you see in the etiquette of the Prophet ﷺ. Jabr al-Khatir. Jabr al-Khatir is like the person's feelings, you keep them together. So sometimes we might complain about something we don't like it might hurt someone else. It could be true, but it's you know it still hurts them. So it doesn't mean obviously we have to it's not a bad thing to improve stuff, but we can just think about how we do. Number twenty, befriend people and stay with those who lead you away and stay away from those who lead you away from the straight path. Befriend people and stay away from those who lead you away from the straight path. The Prophet said, The believer is friendly and is one who is befriended. SubhanAllah. We talked about that last time right before, I think. There is no good in one who is difficult to approach and befriend. And the best of people are those who are most beneficial to people. It's a very important hadith. Very important hadith. There are some hadith, you, know, you ever think about almost like countries and peoples and subgroups of people? have different cultures, right? And sometimes you see that a certain hadith or a certain set of hadith became almost like definitive for that culture or that, or that group of people, right? There's some hadith, you see them and you're like, this hadith should be essential to the culture of the Muslims. Should be essential to the culture of the Muslims. This is actually, you know, one of the things I think that is very special. Uh, don't, and and uh, as always, don't think of exceptions. But I think this is one of the things that's very exceptional about the Egyptian people. May Allah preserve the Egyptian people and, and bring good from them. That the general thing is that people are very easy to get along with and like very easy to bring you into their family to make, it's like, it's just very, things are easy, you know? Like I always tell the story that one time when I was walking down the street in Egypt, I don't know why it just struck me, you know? I'm walking down the street on one side and uh, I can't wait. How, how did, I, did I have Subhanallah, it's been a lot of years. I might mix it up now. I think this is the way it happened. That there's a guy on the other side of the street who's like a doorman, you know, like he guards the building type person. And he sneezed. He said, Alhamdulillah. And then so I yelled out from across the street, Yarhamakullah. And then he said, this is to totally normal in Cairo, by the way. <laughs> he just yelled across the street, Yahamakullah. And he said, Yahdikum Allah yuslah ba'alukum, fadl ashrab shay. Like immediately. He, he, he said the dua, and then he's like, come drink tea. And maybe like you, people don't understand, but he really meant that. Like he, he really wants me to, I didn't, because I had somewhere to go. I was like, thank you, you know, and like back and forth, and then like I went about my way. But he really wanted me to come drink tea with him. And if I drank tea with him in that time, we probably would have been like stuck for life. You know, every three, every three days he would be calling, like checking up on me and stuff like that. It's really like, uh, I had, I, so things would be amazing to me. Like there was one guy, I remember one time when we were in Egypt. He called me, he was like, how are you? Is everything okay? I was like, yeah, everything's fine. He's like, subhanAllah, I was worried about you. We haven't, you know, everything, you sure everything's fine? Yeah, everything's fine. He's like, Taib, alhamdulillah. It's just, it's been a whole week, we didn't hear from you. And like, I didn't know if something happened. <laughs> a week has passed, like you have to be in touch, you know. But subhanAllah, they managed to maintain like a lot of relationships. 
And that's how people get things done. How do I know how to do something? I know somebody. So the people part of it is really, is really like central to the, to the whole culture. But this is how the Muslim should be, like easy to get along with, easy to befriend, easy to, be, to, to just have a good time together, be, be able to know like, okay, this is what we do here, this is what we do there. You know, SubhanAllah. It's a very good quality. Allah help us to be like that. This beautiful hadith highlights some of the most important aspects of Futuwa, namely friendship, pleasantness, and service. The people of Futuwa are approachable and friendly. They, est- they establish close relation- friendship ties with people easily and then make other people feel at ease. However, there is an exception to this rule of friendship. Strong friendship ties should be established with righteous people and not with those who lead people astray from the right path and lead them in wrong directions. It is permissible to associate with people who are on the wrong path with the sole aim of discouraging them from the wrongdoings. Otherwise, such friendships may carry the risk of making one complicit in the wrongdoings of others or may even lead one to eventually join them in their bad deeds. There's this concept Dr. Jonathan Brown talks about it in his book Misquoting Muhammad In the beginning of the book Misquoting Muhammad He talks about this concept He calls it charitable reading Okay, and what, what he's basically arguing Is that when you believe in texts Like you believe in the Quran You believe in the Sunnah of the Prophet Sallallahu we believe that righteous people have had something to benefit us by throughout history. Maybe we might differ on some points, there might be some cultural nuances and so on and so forth, but we assume the best of the person that we're reading from, especially of course if it's Qur'an or if it's Hadith. And when we make that our default interaction, we're able to benefit from things rather than the other way around. For Americans, especially, like, I should, maybe I should be more specific. For people who are educated in America, this is extremely important. Because the general educational system of America is the opposite of this. It's not charitable reading. So our default psychological pattern is to not read charitably. So everything we read, we find an issue with it. And that's actually, throughout our educational system, this is what we're taught. This is how we show that we're smart. is by finding an issue with something. Not by being like, okay, this, alhamdulillah, we can benefit from this point to that point. It's not, that's not how you show that you're, you're learned. You show that you're learned by finding an issue. And you raise your hand and you say, well, what about so and such? There's such and such. And you take a class for 10 weeks and at the end of the 10 weeks they ask you to write a 10-page paper on what you think about it. It's like, <laughs> who told you you should be thinking in the first place? <laughs> you're supposed to be learning right now, not having your own opinion. Right? So there's a, it's a different educational system. It's not that our system in Islam doesn't teach you to think. It teaches you to think later. Right? It's not going to tell you, if you haven't studied poetry before, it's not a system that tells you just write poetry, just write what you feel like. No, it's, you sit down, memorize thousands of lines of poetry, study the greatest poets who ever existed, benefit from their words, so on and so forth, then sit down and write poetry. Totally fine. But you have to pay homage to what came before first. So you, you have like a charitable reading of the text, we take something different from it. Okay? Why am I saying all of this? Some people read this passage, they immediately start to have issues with it. I think if I read this passage 20 years ago, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, immediately I would have had issues with it. You know something happens when you see things in life? Is that your perspective changes. And you realize, subhanAllah, I may have taken issue with that before, but now I realize there's a lot of truth to this. 
Because now, after 20 years of adulthood roughly, like, I can think about people who it seems like they always befriended people who weren't doing good things. They themselves are like a decent person. They're, they were good, they had a good heart, you know, they, they wanted to do what's well, but they always took as their close friends people who weren't like them in that way. And five years down the road, 10 years down the road, 15 years down the road, you see the consequence of it. Maybe not right away, but you see it over time, right? So the issue becomes, we all know that we're stretched on time. Who am I going to spend time with? Am I going to spend time with people who bring me closer to Allah? Or am I going to spend time with people that I'm always having to check myself to not become worse? Right? We might spend time with certain people that we have to check ourselves for various reasons. That's what he said, right? He said there might be various reasons and so on. But we have to know, like deep down inside of ourselves, that this is not something that I accept. <laughs> you know, people who waste all of their time and nothingness and just luxury and all of it. Okay, alhamdulillah, that's their life. But I don't want to live my life like that. So I have to keep that in my heart whenever I'm dealing with them. Not that I have, I'm not judging them, I'm not looking down on them, I'm not doing any of those things. But I'm just recognizing that there's a certain way that I want my life to go. And maybe this is not pulling me in that direction. So I have to know why I'm doing it. Okay? So my point in that, all of that is just to say, if we read it charitably, I'm going to read it again. Try to take the position of charitably reading it. Okay? Uh, however, there is an exception to this rule of friendship. Strong friendship ties should be established with righteous people and not with those who will lead people astray from the right path and lead them in wrong directions. It is permissible to associate with people who are on the wrong path with the sole aim of discouraging them from their wrongdoings. Otherwise, such friendships may carry the risk of making one complicit in the wrongdoings of others or may even lead one to eventually join them in their bad deeds. Okay? So, uh, and, and by the way, we cannot be super close with people and have very normal relationships with them. Right? We can see them, we can say salam, we can ask them about their families, ask them about their children, how is your work, interact them. We can have all kinds of interactions that are very pleasant and very normal, very respectful, without those people being very close to us. Right? Is it not, the, not the same thing. And uh, we all understand this, subhanAllah, you know what's funny about it? Everyone who has kids, they understand this. Because they're thinking about it all the time with their kids. But this is the age-old problem in the Muslim community. Which is, we're always thinking about our kids, we're not thinking about ourselves. <laughs> this is one of the policies we've tried to have at the Majlis. Why this class is the way that it is, is because, and it may sound harsh at first, do a, try a charitable listening, which is that if adults, if the parents are not in the adult programming, we don't really want the kids in the kid programming. It's not because we have any sort of discrimination against the kid or the parent or anything like that. It's that it just doesn't do anything. <laughs> like in the long run, it's, it's like, uh, you know, I shouldn't say it doesn't do anything. Of course it does something. There's something that comes from it. But like, this is the way that we do Islam is meant to be an integrated system. So if, if, if we want the child to benefit, then the adult should want to benefit. If the parent thinks that they don't have anything to benefit, their child also knows that their parent thinks that, right? And the child is coming to the class thinking, I don't have anything to benefit either. I know everything I need to know. And you'd be amazed some of the things I hear in office hours, you know? I've, I've had people that come to me 
and they tell me like, I don't know, you know, I tried to do everything I could for my child. I took them to Sunday school every week. I'm like, okay. It was, that, was, that was like, that's the extent of what, <laughs> like that, that was their Islam, was that you, you took them to Sunday school. I'm not saying, by the way, you could not take them to Sunday school and it would be enough. I'm not, I'm not saying they have to go to Sunday school. That's not my point. But my point is like, how does, the, how does a person live their life? What is every day about? What is, what is every interaction about? What is, uh, how, what is the, how do we do things, right? And, uh, <coughs> and so then it becomes more integrated. I, don't, I don't hope this didn't come off too harsh. I'm not, uh, I, it's not the intention. Uh, I said it, I think I said it wrong. SubhanAllah, last week I went home and I felt bad all day because I felt like there were a number of points that I made last week that I didn't make them well. And I'm feeling that way about this one right now, that I'm not, I'm not appropriately saying what I'm trying to say, and uh, it's making me uncomfortable a little bit. But, uh, yeah. I've had people come to me and think that they know everything that they need to know about Islam because they went to Islamic school up to like fourth grade or something. Really? They're like, I know Islam. I can, I can teach other people about Islam and, and teach this person about Islam. I went to Islamic school up to second grade. <laughs> and I was like, Hasbunallah wa ni'mal wakil. Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'un. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know what to tell you. You know, subhanAllah. Uh, Alhamdulillah. But at the same time, subhanAllah, this is not about classrooms per se. Like there's people who they've never, they don't really sit in classes, but they know Islam and they live Islam and their families know Islam and their families live Islam and they don't lecture, they don't do any, they're, they're never talking to them, they're never lecturing them, they're never, like one of the big mashaykh, Allah, uh, he's blind too, subhanAllah, he's like one of the more senior Hanafi fuqaha in the world, he's blind. He, he said, أَبْنَاؤُنَا نَنْصَحُهُمْ قَلِيلًا وَنَدْعُوا لَهُمْ كَثِيرًا our, our children, we give them advice sparingly And we make a lot of dua for them We give them advice sparingly, we make a lot of dua for them you know, So it's not necessarily about the class or about the hours I'm saying the approach has to be integrated And if we take an approach like that, then we'll see benefit Like I, I guarantee for a parent if, if I'm parenting and I'm trying to take my relationship with Allah very seriously, that will, that will affect my children, even if I don't say anything to them. And by very seriously, I don't mean becoming someone who's like really obnoxious and annoying. I mean someone who really has like some taqwa, who wants to do things that are pleasing to Allah, wants to have good character, wants to be beautiful, wants to bring beauty into the world, wants to give people their rights, so on and so forth, you know. And subhanAllah, kids, uh, they say amazing things. One kid, I heard, I heard the kid say recently about all this stuff that's happening in, in Gaza, you know? Allah yansuruhum. And how many of them, how many of the people who have been killed are children, right? It's like a very high percentage. And this kid heard that, and they said, well then all of them are going to Jannah and all the people who killed them are going to, going to Nar. 
And I was like, SubhanAllah, that's a really profound, simple, and true thing. SubhanAllah. Someone, the general position of Ahl Sunnah is that someone who's killed before puberty goes, goes to paradise. So this child heard that. They were like, all of them are going to Jannah. All the people who are pressing them are going to hellfire. Door was, that's it. It was done. <laughs> Enough knowledge on the issue. We're good to go. <laughs> Bismillah. Allah, subhanAllah. Anyways. Number 21. Give advice in private. Accept good advice, warnings, and criticisms with humility and satisfaction from whoever they come from. Ya Latif. Okay, let's try to finish this one. Giving advice and listening to the given advice are an important part of social relationships. However, they are also subject to a proper etiquette and the people of Futuwa follow this etiquette very closely. If we're a people who are meant to be about something, right? Like we're about the Prophet, we're about Allah, we're about, there's something in our lives, which means, and living by it, which means that we, it's necessary that we receive advice. And it's also necessary that we give advice, right? So, as a community, then how do we do that? And always reminding ourselves that when the proper etiquette is not observed, you have negative consequences, right? So I believe that in our community, we have a bad synergy that happened, which was that in the 90s and early 2000s, and up to today, but especially in the 90s and early 2000s, it was very, very common for people to give religious advice in ways that were really bad. And the reaction to that is, I don't want to hear it. And then you add on top of it that we have a culture, in general, American culture, that doesn't want to hear it also. <laughs> so then you end up with a really big extreme, which is no one can tell anyone anything. And as a people, that's not a good situation to be in. Right? It's not a good situation. Uh, so what are we saying here? On one hand, the most important etiquette of giving advice is to give it when you are alone with the person. In this way, you ensure that you are not embarrassing the person whose mistake is being told in front of people and would therefore avoid being faced with a defensive reaction out of pride. This is why it was said that advice in public is an insult. You know, that's a good translation actually. To give advice in public is an insult. You embarrass the person. Sometimes it's going to be necessary to give advice in public, right? Like if there's an immediate harm that's being taken place and it has to be stopped, you're going to have to advise the person to stop, right? And advising can happen at multiple levels. Uh, but uh, sometimes it happens. But generally, if we can talk to the person privately, we talk to them privately. On the other hand, the person who is given advice, warned or criticized, also has a set of good manners that they should follow. This one about doing it privately is not the only etiquette. It should be done respectfully, it should be done nicely, it should be done with... It probably shouldn't be done every single time you see them. It shouldn't be like every time you see them there's a new thing you're advising them on. You know, done with a little bit of strategy, a little bit of wisdom, right? The most important of the manners for the one who's receiving the manners is to welcome the advice with satisfaction and gratitude. In some cases, the person who is advising or criticizing you may be younger, less knowledgeable, or have a lower status than you. In these cases, it is also necessary to listen carefully with humility and contentment without being too proud or trying to defend yourself. As the Arabic proverb says, do not look at who says, look at what they say. <coughs> then, if there is truth in the words, they are happily accepted. Otherwise, you explain your stance 
and situation to the addressee in the appropriate way if he has the capacity to understand. If he has the capacity to understand. Sometimes someone gives advice and it's just wrong. Maybe they didn't understand the situation. Maybe what they said is just not true. Maybe they, there's a whole number of possibilities why their advice could just be wrong. And you look at them and you start to like try to do that and you realize that this is going nowhere. So you just say, Alhamdulillah, Zakumul Khairan, Allah help us to be better. <laughs> you move on with your life and let them move on with theirs. You know? Sometimes it's not, you, if they have the capacity to understand, some people don't. If the conversation turns into a debate, then the discussion is con conducted in accordance with the debating etiquette. The most important rules of the debating etiquette can be briefly summarized as follows. This is its own discipline of study in Islamic studies. Adab al munadhara How to study and debate. Uh, some of them are, the purpose of the discussion is not to win the debate. The purpose is to reveal the truth. Number one. Number two, listen carefully to the other person without prejudice. Number three, ask for the reason of their claims. Number four, after all of these steps, you can show objection. Okay, so first I have to understand. What is the person? Receive it, understand it, why are they saying it, so on. And then I can begin to respond to it. It's really important that we discipline ourselves and try to do this in a way that is um, uh, orderly. <coughs> One of the things that I've noticed in community life is that I feel like it's very common that the debate that we're having is not on the actual point that's being talked about. Like someone says something, someone else responds to them. And then they're like, okay, I'm going to respond to them. And then this person's like, oh, I'm going to respond to them. <laughs> and they're like, I'm going to respond to them. <laughs> it's like none of it is actually, okay, what is the actual issue that's being discussed? What is the actual issue that's being talked about? What is, what is the crux of the matter? It's not meeting. Maybe there's an insufficiency in, in understanding, insufficiency in listening properly. But, and then you leave afterwards and you're like, subhanAllah, we were just discussing this thing for about 45 minutes. And I don't think anyone like got anywhere in this whole conversation. Like everyone was just running circles around each other and they weren't actually dealing with the issue. And part of that also is not only that we're not listening properly, part of it is also that sometimes we have, we're assuming things about what the person is saying. And this is, I think, one of the big challenges of, of talking to people. Um, is that if we don't really know the other person, so many things can be understood in different ways and we tend to assume without even realizing that we're assuming and then you realize afterwards like oh they didn't even understand what I was saying like they 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 I, I maybe I wasn't clear enough or like whatever it was but there was a complete misunderstanding so you know if we're gonna go into these back and forths then uh, we can keep that in mind and we should also remember that the Prophet them guaranteed a special reward in paradise for those who give up a debate or an argument even when they're right. Specifically, he said, them, even when they're right. You know, they're, they're on the right, they're on the truth. And they just give it up. They're like, you know what, forget it, it's okay. <laughs> we don't have to have this argument right now. And sometimes it's just not the time for the argument, too. You know? uh, so all of these things can be considered when we're. Uh, but the main point here is that we need to be able to give other people advice and we need to be able to receive advice. 
This is true, by the way, even if not especially even for people of knowledge. And it's a very scary thing to be in a position where people look at you as having some sort of knowledge or something like that. And because of that, they don't give you any advice or any feedback or anything. It's a very scary thing. Because next thing you know, you just find yourself like basically in front of the gates of hell. And it's like, what happened? Well, what happened is that nobody ever pushed back. Like nobody ever said, well, why is that the case? Or what are you trying to say with that? Or I don't like, is that the right way to do it? Or so on and so forth, you know? Um, this is also one of the reasons why I generally prefer religious teachers who exist at some level in public life. Generally. How that looks is not always the same. But like for example, I, I, one of the things I appreciate and respect about Sheikh Omar Suleiman, Allah preserve him, is that he still holds a position in his local masjid. Does he have to do that? Absolutely not. <laughs> he absolutely does not need to hold a position in his local masjid. Yaqeen, mashallah. He absolutely, by the way, did not have to start an organization that employed a bunch of people. Right? Like he could have just done that and used his name to make money for himself. That's, that's not what the whole thing was clearly about. The whole thing was about, okay, how can we use whatever we have to benefit more people and like bring people on and employ people and so on and so forth. That's a really noble thing, mashallah. And then to keep a local, like, office is there in the masjid, you know. He has an office in the masjid. He doesn't have to. Like, he could just pop into places and give a lecture for a lot of money and listen to one or two people and then walk out the back door and not come back, right? He could do that in every city around the country every weekend and probably make hundreds of thousands of dollars for it to be really honest, right? But he doesn't. He'd go to his local masjid, come do a program in the local masjid, hear from the community. Uncle that's probably seen you for the last 20 years, he's going to see you. Like, that's all really important and really good. Now, it doesn't always look the same way for everybody, but those, I, I think that those kind of things are important because it keeps the person kind of grounded a little bit. You know? um, So maybe that's my last comment. Some things I've said some things in the last couple of lectures that I think were not uh, really good. Like one of the things that I'm grateful for in community life, even when it doesn't go the way that we want it to go, someone gives you a hard time, they yell at you, they treat you wrong, so on and so forth. All of that, actually, there's still, in the grand scheme of things, a benefit in that. <laughs> Which is like, okay, I need to hear that. And you need the wild card person. You need the person who's always going to treat you like you just learned Surah Al-Fatiha. No matter what, like, it's, it's, you know, you just learned how to pray. You know, they're going to treat you like that for the next 40 years. Alhamdulillah. That's the way they see you. Alhamdulillah. Everyone needs aunties. Everyone needs uncles. Everyone needs parents. Everyone needs grandparents. Everyone needs kids. Kids are going to come to you. Kids are going to ask you all kinds of questions. Kids are going to disrespect you in ways you can never imagine. <laughs> You're like, okay, Alhamdulillah. Like, it, you know, it keeps things real. The Prophet ﷺ, in the end of the day, he lived in his community, right, in his masjid. Anyone could find him. Anyone. Even Sayyidina Umar Anyone could find him. We know where to go. We find the Prophet ﷺ here. We find Sayyidina Umar here. We find Sayyidina Abu Bakr here. And that's, you know, alhamdulillah. 
uh, there's a benefit in that. As people, we need people because we, we push on each other. And in that pushing on each other and that tension that we have with each other, it actually makes us better. And if we don't have it, we don't actually become better. It's part of why life is difficult. Life is not difficult just so it's difficult. Life is difficult so that we're better. Like if you want to be good at something, you go to practice. You don't just show up on game day. Practice. Practice is annoying and it's difficult and it's hard. And usually, somehow, no matter how hard you practice, you're always pushing yourself harder, right? It's just the way that it is. So these things are it's necessary. It's a necessary part of human life. To have ups and downs, to have difficulties, to have hardships, to have loss, to have sorrow. To Allah says, we're going to test you with losing some of your wealth and losing some of your life and having some ups and downs and, 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 and death and all of these kind of things. Uh, give glad tidings to those who are patient. Why? Because they keep pushing and they become stronger and they become stronger. It's like one of the brothers I was telling him, one of our teachers, Anytime we ask him about something, and we're kind of asking him, like, essentially, like, can we leave this thing and do something else? It's almost always no. It's like, no, just do that and do that. <laughs> like, but I'm saying, like, I don't have time for both. That's like, yeah, just say, la hawla wa la quwwata illa billah, seven times, and do this and do that, and do both. And I'm like, subhanAllah, I don't, but it's like, you have to, have to, uh, of course, there's a limit on this, but. I believe it's very important that we embrace this concept that difficulty is normal and it's important and it's necessary in life. And rather than being upset that things are difficult, I just have to look at it like, Alhamdulillah, I have that opportunity to deal with this. And when I have that opportunity to deal with this thing, then it makes me stronger. And that will help me when I deal with other things. But I'm going to keep, keep exercising and keep doing it, inshallah.